Welcome to episode 45 of Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversation and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy, and with me, as always, is Mr. Matt Leach. How are you? Great. How are you? Really good. So we've finally got Andy Hoyne in the right. studio with us. <laughs> it's been very excited. Good evening, Mr. Hoyne. Episode 45. Right? I know. You guys have been killing it. And I, I'm wondering, why did it take me so long? And it isn't like you haven't asked me before, so I should... Uh, I'm sure we've asked you. Thanks for uh, for offering a number of times, and um, I'm sure I had great excuses, but I have been, I'm pretty excited to be here. It's good. It's got to be good now. Well, now I better say something worth hearing, right? Yeah, exactly. I'll give our listeners, uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, which would, which would be weird, I guess, uh, a little bit of a background of you. So you've been going for a long time. As as your own company, Hoyne. <laughs> a it's, long time, yeah. It's, well, it's a long, like, it's nearly 26 years. Yeah. Actually, it's 25 years and nine months. Yeah, good, uh, wow. You've got three offices, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. You've got over 60 people, say, yep. working, working across all those. Worked with some huge major brands, and then you've also been instrumental in a couple of the major brands that we kind of know of, particularly Australian ones. So I'm thinking Triple J... Dick Smith, yeah. um, which is... <laughs> Not exactly my finest yeah. moment in hindsight. Really? <laughs> well, actually, uh, th- it was a great project, and we did really good work in creating a unique positioning for them. It's definitely but got a unique positioning. It's so. just sad that, uh, you know, people ran it to the ground. Um, you know, design can only do so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I mean, you've got over 350 awards, uh, and y- what I think is probably the most exciting one is your... Your studio has been named the most effective design studio three years in a row, which is so. Tell us what what is effective. What, <laughs> what the does hell that does that mean? That mean? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think when I started as as a designer, like most people who are excited by visual things, and then they evolve to thinking about ideas and um, and ways to make business uh, effective. The evolution of uh, my career has been very much about how to achieve better things for business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I started out loving just the aesthetic and now it's turned into a desire to see great outcomes. And so for me, effectiveness is this way of uh, reviewing how we can actually achieve better outcomes in terms of profitability, engagement. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a, quite a long list of objectives. Um, but I really want to know that when I'm involved in an organisation, that by the time I leave, it's a far stronger, resilient, powerful, engaging, dynamic organisation. And so for me, they're all sort of uh, components of being effective. Mm. So you alluded very quickly to like this, you know, how much you've sort of grown over, over the 25 years. I think what a lot of people don't really know is the story about how you kind of started. And because you, you never actually finished uni, did you? No. I got into uni at RMIT and I just was a really bad student. You know, I was just rocking up to school stinking of alcohol. Sometimes it was mine, sometimes it's the it job. wasn't it's mine. Not me, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I say, people did think it was pretty cool, but it, it wasn't that cool. And um, I just didn't really do what I feel I do now, which is commit. You know, I'm really good at commitment now and, um, and perseverance. But I think mm-hmm. at that time with certain things happening in my life, uh, I just was more interested in paying the rent and just getting from A to B. And so uni was probably more about a social endeavor at the time. You know, I love design and I wanted to actually be a designer, but I just didn't make it my priority. So so where did that come from? So when you say you love design, so you, you 
clearly knew you wanted to be a designer before you went to uni. So where did that come from? As a kid, I loved to draw. My parents were always very encouraging. Um, you know, there was nothing really too deep and meaningful about it except for just an illustration, which I was probably not very good at, but I just enjoyed doing it. Mm. And I wanted to do something visual. You know, I wasn't really sure. And my high school didn't really give much indication about career options. I didn't know whether... I didn't even know what a graphic designer was. So for me, it was really a case of just picking the thing that seemed like it had the most scope to try a variation of activities. And Mm. that graphic design fit that because I thought, well, it's not industrial design. It's not fashion design. It's not architecture because I didn't want to have to do all the science and the maths to get into it. Um, So the idea of doing something visual, I started my first business when I was about um, 14. Uh, designing and selling t-shirts and I used to go into um, Quicksilver and Rip Curl and Surf Dive and Ski and even my local um, little sort of clothing shops in in Werribee and just sell 10 t-shirts or 20 t-shirts or sometimes you know 40 t-shirts and that I did that for about uh, three or four years I would just screen print them at night time when the family went to bed at about uh, midnight, so I'd screen print from midnight to 5 a.m. <laughs> and then, you know, the family would wake up with just t shirts everywhere. <laughs> and I just kind of like skater t shirts, and I just, you know, shit that I made up. And yeah. it was mostly one or two color screen prints. Um, yeah, so I did that. And that was probably an interesting starting uh, exercise to understanding a little bit about business, you mm-hmm. know, going to the factory, buying them wholesale. And it was just money that I'd saved up from either doing my paper round or working at Target. I don't wow. really answer the question. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm, I, I, That's perfect. Rather than talking about what's happening in 2016, I've really gone one <laughs> step backwards and then uh, ten steps more. No, well, um, this, this is it. so. So you, but you go to uni and then you and then you bow out. So how do you then go to open your your business, your design business? So I dropped out of uni in first year at RMIT, and my friends all continued on doing great work uh, achieving uh, their degrees and I was just kind of working in nightclubs and pubs and by the time they finished their degrees I was feeling a bit jealous I was like oh wow look at these guys are going to go out and work in interesting design jobs and so I thought I'm going to have a go but without going back to uni so I'd been making posters and flyers for the nightclubs that I'd been you know promoting so that was my folio um, so I'd just really decided to just give it a crack and start. I, it was, you know, I, what I always say to people, being naive is a great thing. Yep. You know, knowing, not knowing what you should do uh, is a blessing. And my view was that I'll just have a crack. And because I knew the hospitality industry, I just used the work that I'd done to go and meet people and say, can I do your posters and flyers? And so while probably my friends who had gotten their degree were working in you know reputable quality design studios i was just doing hack work uh just because i was just trying to learn on my feet um and then you know one thing led to another and that was in 1991 uh i started by approaching a number of festivals and saying hey i know you've got virtually no money i'll do it (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Uh, and i picked up a bit of work and you know some of that became high profile and uh, and it led to commercial work, and then one thing led to another. Um, and the, look, the reality is in business, it's part chutzpah, it's part talent, it's part bravado, and it's part just willing to kind of take risks and throw yourself at uh, situations. There sort of seems to be a lot of learning happening between 
you know, not being very good at persevering or getting shit done during your education days, but you sort of trial by fire, like you learnt, learnt on the job. Is that something that you suggest other people do? Yeah, I think in hindsight, it was about priorities. I just don't think I made education a priority. It just really, there was just too much other thing, things going on in my life, you know, living out of home at a younger age and um, just trying to kind of make ends meet. And also, you know, being a kind of young, redheaded, pimply, freckled, not very attractive kid, um, <laughs> trying to get a root. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was probably a big priority at the time. Um, and so... I remember seeing a picture of you in student days and you had you had long hair. Yeah, I had long hair. Oh, my God. <laughs> you weren't even trying. You can't, <laughs> you can't live down the past. It always comes back to haunt you. <laughs> and the bastards at work every once in a while will, like, flick around a, a, an old photo of me to everyone just to remind them what a dick I was to look like. It is funny, though. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, my thing is that I do talk to people a lot about, you know, perseverance and passion. And when I finally kind of got going and I realized that I wanted to put a lot of energy into it, I became fairly single-minded and I worked absolutely extraordinary hours when I first started. I think, you know, there's always this, there's different things that drive you as a person and the things that drive me have changed incredibly over the years. But I think one of them at the time was, um, was a competitive spirit. And I'm not sure that I, I, I still have a competitive spirit, but in a different way. I don't really feel competitive against other people these days. Uh, I just kind of want to do better than I did yesterday. Mm. But as a younger person, you know, I kind of felt like I had something to prove because I didn't have a degree and I didn't, you know, have uh, a lot of the knowledge that I should have had. And so I just thought I just need to work harder and I just need to put in as much effort as possible. So when did you decide to put Hoyne on the door? Was so that? I started in 91 and called it Andrew Hoyne Design. Uh-huh. And I think it was a number of years later that um, shortened it to Hoyne Design. And then many, many years later after that, just shortened it to Hoyne. Just to Hoyne. Um, and soon it'll just be H. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, the amount of times I have had conversations with clients and said, naming the business after yourself is the dumbest thing you can do. And, and they think, just give me that yeah. dead stare of, are you really telling me this? <laughs> and I go, I know, it seems like a contradiction. And the only reason I'm kind of still called Hoyne is the longer I go, the more it seems like, you know, there's equity in the name and yeah. it's hard, harder to change. But I can't tell you the amount of times that I've sat down with senior people in my business and said, let's change our business name holistically. Mm. And they've just looked at me and thought you're an idiot no we're not changing the business name you know all the accolade all the reputation all the, it's all connected to Hoyne but after 25 years would I do that you might be surprised really because <laughs> I, I remember you telling me once just that you were at that stage where there's a lot going on but the clients still eventually want to meet Hoyne yeah, and that's the case of anyone whose name's on the front door. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of successful designers in the Australian design industry whose names are on the front door, and no doubt they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, which is, you know, it's great to engage with as many people as possible, and it's great to kind of be involved in a lot of the conversations. But, you know, when we're, you know, getting close to 70 people, I've got so many talented, smart people who are better at so many things than I am that I need to push them up front. I need to mm. be, them to be the spokespeople and them to be talking about the strategy and, and the big ideas. Um, I like to be involved in a percentage of things, but not everything. 
interestingly, I was just thinking about this whole naming uh, notion. And when I started earlier, I, I actually, <laughs> I'm probably a little known fact, I think in 92 or 93, I started a second business called Enzo Presley Ink Design. Oh, now, really? Enzo Presley did greeting cards, diaries, notebooks, photo albums. It actually became a, quite a big enterprise. Wow. I think <laughs> by its um, second or third, by third year. Where did the name go? Enzo Presley. <laughs> it was a bit of a piss take. There's two <laughs> answers to that story, the real one and the false one. <laughs> the real story was that uh, a mate of mine, uh, he was a great guitar player and he used to sing um, Elvis songs because he was Italian. So the piss take, you know, a few of the guys called him Enzo Presley. Yeah. Um, what I used to tell the media, because I ended up getting a lot of press and a lot of articles, was that um, I didn't think we should be importing goods from America and Europe. So, you know, Enzo was the Europe and Presley was the America. Wow. And so I was, you know, going against that mold. <laughs> nice post-specialization. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Said just like a designer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, by the third year, we probably had about, I don't know, we would have turned over $3 million. You know, I was still in my mid-20s. Uh, probably didn't make a cent. It was pretty hard, actually, manufacturing products and exporting them around the world. We are exporting to about 16 countries. I remember in about my fourth year, uh, our Japanese distributor, this is in the 90s, and a lot of you know, financial volatility was uh, occurring at that point in time. And even the idea of starting a business in 91, which up until recent recessions was considered, you know, the worst recession, um, so, and it, I often say to people, if you're going to start a business, start it in bad times, not good times. You want to test yourself right. uh, in a difficult environment, not an easy environment. Hmm. And I think you can apply that thinking to a lot of things in life, actually. Um, so, yeah, I had this business, Enzo Presley, and then I started a third business called Three Bags Full. I did some homewares, some, um, you know, tea towels, ironing board covers, gardening mitts, laundry bags, and uh, built that up. And then I had a fourth business called Paper Scissors Rock, uh, different to the uh, well-known design firm of a similar name, uh, who'd started around the same time. Um, this made handmade paper or post-consumer waste, recycled paper. Oh, wow. Embedded with seeds. So when you plant Oh, it, was it that grew. yours? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. So funny. I even read an article a few days ago about this idea with paper with seeds, and I thought, wow. So I launched that business in <laughs> 1994 or 95. And in fact, that business had 11 full-time employees in a warehouse. Wow. And we were selling it to uh, our spree, whole-proof, like really major uh, it was corporations. That's an awesome idea. Mm. Such an um, awesome idea. Ended up getting an enormous amount of press as well. Didn't make any money. Oh, God, I had no idea about how to make money. Fuck, I turned over a lot of it. Really? <laughs> it just went in one hand and out the other. And I seriously was probably during this entire time earning a salary of about $35,000 a year and just, wow. you know, living on chips. And, you know, I probably had about 20-something, 20 25 staff or something. Um, but I just I, – I, I was so enthusiastic about doing things and all I could see were the benefit or the positive side. And um, as I was about to say before, sorry, about the, um, the, the difficult financial circumstances of the time, Japanese distributor went bankrupt, English distributor went bankrupt, uh, Remo, uh, some stores in Sydney went bankrupt – a chain of stores in Australia called the Ink Group went bankrupt. Um, in one year alone, I had $240,000 of bad debts. Now, this is in the mid-90s. Wow. This is mm. 20 years ago. So if you kind of think about finance and you double it every 10 years, so 250000 500000 
a million. So it's kind of the equivalent of losing of someone not paying you one million dollars today. Wow. Now it took me two years to make enough money to pay the suppliers back, and I did pay the two of them back that I owed a lot of money to, and I'm really close friends to with them to this very day because they couldn't believe that I paid them back when my accountant oh sorry I shouldn't say that I was going to say a professional I know suggested just closing down but anyway I persevered I persevered and my view was always that I'm going to be here for a long time and I always want to do the right thing um, because you know you can't rebuy your reputation you can't rebuild your reputation yeah. when it's broken it's broken and it'll always be tarnished so so you kept those businesses going or did you no, pay the I money back through other, other I paid businesses. the money yeah. I kept them going and I worked out a deal where I paid the suppliers COD as well as paying them uh, a fortnightly amount to pay the amount down until it was completely paid out and in fact one of those suppliers 20 years later, I still work with them. The other one doesn't exist as a company anymore. I'm still friends with the family. But the other one said to me a year or two ago, I was their biggest client that year. So 20 years later, I'm still spending a million bucks a year with them. Wow. I often say to people, one of the most important things in life is relationships. Yeah. No matter what you're doing or what you're involved in, relationships are everything. With your friends, your family, your partner the people you work with, everything, your suppliers, clients, you fuck those things up, you fuck up your life. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Do you think it's more about the attitude around approaching those sorts of conversations and how you treat people? Or is it like every individual kind of relationship? Because like speaking to other designers or ad people or whatever is in your community, treating them all really well and then treating the wait staff like shit when yeah. you go to a restaurant or something like that you think it's more about the mindset behind things or yeah i think you know you've got to have a really respectful attitude to everybody and it's interesting i often say that when i'm dealing with the ceo or the owner of a major organization they will commonly be very easy to talk to and you can just have an open chat with them mm. it's the middle management that act like pricks <laughs> you know it's they're the ones that treat you really badly and they kind of remind you that you're nothing but a supplier and i just think Asshole, your boss yeah. is actually a really easygoing guy. Why do you have to be such a dick? And you know, you want consistency in life. You know, you can't have multitude of personalities. It's too hard to remember who you were yesterday. <laughs> so you're better off just having one approach to everybody. And yeah. um, you know, the amount of times I've been told, "Oh, so and so's on the phone for you. They're just trying to sell you something." I'm like, "Yeah, put them through." And like, you don't have to speak to them. I'm like, "Yeah, I speak to everybody." And even if we don't want to buy what they're selling, that's okay. I'll just chat with them and I'll tell them and I'll explain that's not a service we need or, you know, whatever. It's just you, you don't want to avoid conversations. Mm. You're better off just hitting everything head on and, and confronting it. But how do you find it? Because I know you're incredibly good. Like students or anyone who kind of contacts you, you always get back to. How do you find the time? With, with, I mean, you've got three kids, <laughs> three, three studios. Like um, I just make time. I don't know. I just think... In He's life, found you know. the secret. <laughs> do you know, Where do you I, find it? Because I've been looking. Okay, yeah. I actually have found the secret, and <laughs> I'll be honest with you, it's blatantly simple. So, if anyone who's listening to this, if, if you're out there, um, <laughs> there's one thing to take away, and I have said this a number of times in the past, because it is so simple and it is so true, and it can change everyone's life. And you can write that book, you can make that play, you can do that inspirational project you've always wanted to do. Just stop watching TV. Mm. That's it. Stop watching TV. Stop watching it for one week and count the hours you save. One 
week. Now think about stop watching TV, stopping for the next year or 10 years and think about all the things that you could create. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm saying you shouldn't watch TV. I mean, I love TV. I love, well, not free to air, but I love sitting down with my wife and, you know, watching some episode of Game of Thrones or whatever. It's awesome. Mm. But that's entertainment. Like, I know when I sit down and, you know, have a bottle of wine and we'll, you know, snuggle up on the couch and watch yep. something together. Fantastic. It's great a, it's time It's an together. event. Yeah. But we might go a week or two or three weeks where it's never been turned on where we haven't actually gotten to that next episode because we've just been too busy with work or a social life or our children um, or traveling uh, and that's fine but you know I think the notion that people walk in the front door and they switch on the TV on. it's a bad way to behave yeah. um, and you know the reality is that uh, I start work pretty early every day and people often are a bit shocked by that but I say well I like to go to bed early too so I go to bed early if I'm not working or at a function or doing something and I just read a book it might only be a sentence or a page and if I'm lucky it might be five pages yeah. so I fall asleep pretty quickly um, do, you, do you find it really hard to keep hold of the storylines because I, I definitely yeah. do <laughs> sometimes I pick up the book and I go back a page yeah. and I've gotten to this crazy habit in the last probably five years, I, I stopped reading fiction. Now all I read is, um, yeah, more factual right. books, books about strategy and design and uh, and business and philosophy um, and life. And so, yeah, and so I just find myself rereading the same books sometimes, mm. books that are really inspirational. I get a lot out of it. I have a habit of having a red pen and underlining everything. And, and when I really like stuff, I type it out and I share it with people in my team mm. or I email it to people. Um, and then when people have meetings with me, if I think, oh, this person really needs to read this book, I literally just reach over, grab it and go, take this with you, it's yours. Nice. Yep. You need to read this. And it's really about the conversation requires someone to learn to or understand. get out this insight. Yep. And, uh, you know, rather than me saying, hey, I've got the answer for you, I just say, look, this book will enlighten things yeah. for you. Um, I'm, I'm always recommending books. I like the idea that just on the inside cover, it's, you know, to Sean, my favorite client, don't watch TV, read this book instead. <laughs> <any point. laughs> it's true, you know, like seriously, if you just, if you go to bed a little bit early and read a bit of a book, I, still, page or I whatever. still don't think it explains, because don't you get up every morning and go for a massive bike ride? Not a massive one, no, I get up, so I get up at 4.20 every day and I, go for a one hour bike ride right. so I just like to La Perouse and back it's 30k um, it's just just 30k it's not, yeah. not as far as you think <laughs> um, it's, it's not that big I've got friends who you do like 100k a day and they're machines wow so for me I just think wow I'm a graphic designer I sit on my ass a lot I need to do something you know I try I walk to work most days and go for a ride you know I've got my Fitbit and I kind of live by that I find it really hard to keep weight off because I'm always drinking booze and eating great food. And <laughs> so I kind of have to counter it with something. Otherwise, I'm going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good motivation. Yeah. Three kids. I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring back to the business because you've got three studios. And I wanted to know, whether are they, are they all working together or are they very separate businesses? Ah, very, very collaborative, actually. Um, interestingly... It's not so today. I had uh, one of the guys from Brisbane. Uh, tomorrow, I've got two people from Melbourne in the Sydney office. I'm in Brisbane almost every week, in Melbourne, probably every second week. A lot of the guys travel, like we as a company, spend a lot of money um, on flights. Mm -hmm. um, 
years ago, I used to be probably a bit of a penny pincher with a lot of things like costs of the business. And now I just see it as a reality. You know, it's just, you know, a cost of doing business. And for me, it's really important that I invest in my people and my culture. And that means moving people around to engage with each other. Yep. You know, phone and Skype and emails can only do so much. So, mm. you know, and the reality is that when you've got a team of close to 70, you've got a lot of really unique skills. And so those unique skills can't be geographically constrained. Yeah. So we need to move people around a lot to be involved in projects and to collaborate and to mix up the teams. And they really enjoy it. You know, it's a great way for people to work in other states and different types of projects. And it's quite exciting. It's a weird thing, isn't it, that, you know, we've got all this new technology, but it still can't get away from that kind of like sitting across from someone and just how how much difference it makes. Yeah, I mean, we always do this live now because it's a casual, more, more casual conversation than when you're in a computer and you're looking at a screen again. Yeah. So there's well, that human element. Over a computer, we can't clink beers, can we? No, we can't. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you've brought in, is this the same sort of idea? Because you've brought in, when I saw your new studio, which we'll get to in a second, uh, you've brought in a lot of 3D kind of artists and developers. Is that because the same sort of thing about that them sitting around the designers creates a new energy and a new... Uh, look, I'll be honest, the reason I got... I created a 3D CGI team was a big part of our work is doing property marketing mm -hmm. and we use a lot of people in that sector and they are usually running late. I'm usually not happy with the product even though we'll art direct the shit out of it uh, and we'll you know, craft it, style it, you name it. The amount of times that I would have to sit back and feel a little bit depressed that uh, you know, it's that third party component that's ruining the work that I'm trying to create really depressed me mm. and so initially i just thought look this financially it doesn't stack up i don't want to be doing cgi as a business the salaries are high the software and hardware is through the roof uh it's really hard to get staff culturally they're probably not the same as the people who are in our current business so i was pretty reticent but in the end i just thought it's about the work and if i can get a better quality outcome i just have to do it regardless so we've recruited a team they're great people uh, they do use PCs, which is kind of weird, um, <laughs> you know, when you've got such a, a, a Mac culture in design. But the reality is they're great creative guys who have made a fantastic contribution to our team. Uh, we really integrated them. Uh, historically, people in that sphere are always segregated. They're always kind mm -hmm. of directed. They're never really engaged. And so for them, it's very exciting to be a part of a team that wants them to ideate uh, and to brainstorm. So they're not just executing, they're you know, actually creating ideas from scratch. And I think even in the short time of a bit over a year since I've had this team, we're probably, I think we're creating the best work in the industry. And it's really exciting. You know, we're now doing full films. Uh, we're doing, you know, major fly-through animation. Wow. We're shooting, we've got our own video team in-house. Um, I think I've always felt that at Hoyne we have created talented resources internally that most people uh, subcontract. You know, we've got five copywriters. I think very few design firms mm. in Australia would have any copywriters, let alone five. We've got in-house strategy. Um, there's quite a few of us who do strategy as well as like people doing strategy as their sole role. 
so when you know we've got people doing all sorts of specialized tasks internally at a really high level we can control the process we can collaborate more we can work more constructively um, and you know on those occasions when we've got to get quick to market we can do it and we've got no third-party kind of uh, resources holding us up Mm. so it's worked out really well it has meant that i've had to take a lot of financial risks Uh, i've had to kind of put my neck on the line and hope things kind of come good Um, but after 25 years i'm pretty used to that i've tried a lot of things i've failed a lot of things i've got a lot of things wrong Um, i've fallen on my face a lot Um, but Do do you just have a different way of looking at risk you know, for, for me, risk is just the price of entry. You know, uh-huh. if you want to be a good designer, you've got to take a lot of risks. Um, you know, I'm still getting there. Am I a good designer today? Maybe I'm okay. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> but, you know, you never kind of start designing something and hit on the solution. You always kind of work around it. You're always trying to investigate. And in hindsight, you actually may do something and find that first idea was your best idea, but you didn't know that until you came up with 20 yep. more shit ones. So... The reality is that it's trial and error based on insight and knowledge and experience. And if you're not prepared to risk, you're really not going to stretch yourself. And the reality is with risk, whilst it sounds a bit sexy to you know talk about risk, true risk means that you really do fail every once in a while. Hopefully more often you succeed. And as you get older, hopefully you succeed more often than not. But the interesting thing about that in getting older is that you also predetermine your approach to creating success. And so you start to mitigate risk without meaning to by utilizing your experience to arrive at an outcome very quickly. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just get the youngest person in the studio to look at something. A fresh perspective, someone who will come up with an idea that you might say, oh, I've thought of that before, I did that, didn't work. When the reality is they might have a twist to it. They might come up with a different version of it. And the time might be right for it now when it wasn't 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. So you've kind of got to put that baggage aside. And rather than sort of trying to tell someone younger that you know what doesn't work, you've just got to sort of pull your head in and say nothing and just let them try because they might succeed where you failed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's pretty exciting. I really like the idea of having people on your team who are coming up with ideas that you couldn't come up with or you failed to come up with. And that's the whole point of having a team. You're not trying to just bolt on people to execute your vision. You're trying to actually add a true team of thinkers that are going to actually add value by developing thinking that your brain didn't take you there. Mm. Uh, That's the beauty of a number of people as opposed to just people executing what you tell them. The hive mind. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) So you spoke about property development and I guess quite a few people are quite surprised when they realize that that's a major part of your business now isn't it yeah well it's interesting you know I I've over 25 years I think I've tried a lot of things and when I first started I was like every you know or the predominant graphic design industry you know I was a generalist and I did whatever jobs came in and you know I enjoyed them and I love the diversity as most designers do but you actually end up finding out that it's very difficult to win work when you're a generalist because you can't differentiate yourself apart from saying you've done some great work. Right. Um, and so over those years, I've tried specialising in a number of things. You know, I've always loved book publishing, uh, but you know, the reality is there's no money in it. You couldn't sustain a business. But you've 
published a load of books. Yeah, but it lost a bunch of money. (laughs) (laughs) I literally found this out about a month ago, like 14, 15 books. Yeah, I think this is my 16th I've just brought out now. So I'll come back to that because that's a separate category because I don't think of that as business. That's just like my hobby that I do during the day. Right. We, in the 90s, you know, most of my clients were fashion from Esprit, Scanlon and Theodore, Just Jeans, you name it. And I didn't make any money. You know, like they don't pay well, they pay late. Uh, you know, cash flow is a dog. And I just thought, this is a nightmare. And yeah, you're hanging out with cool, good-looking, interesting people, but it's just not sustaining a real business. And then, you know, we got into working for a lot of corporates in the late 90s because I kind of rebelled against fashion. Yeah. We're working for banks and insurance companies and all that. And it's got to be boring. And then, you know, we got into a lot of alcohol work. I know, I remember your alcohol day. And that was great. You know, that was a big thing for us for 10 years. We'd, you know, we got to, you know, invent Pure Blonde and we yeah. worked on about 35 or 40 alcohol brands. And it was very exciting and I enjoyed it. But then what happened? Well, Coles and Woolies and Private Label kind of killed the industry. Right. And, you know, the budgets didn't go down by a bit. They went down by like, you know, 70%. Wow. And we were even doing Private Label for Coles. And I just thought... I'm really not enjoying this work. And worse, I'm really not enjoying these people. Yeah. And I just thought, I'm done. I don't want to work in packaging or FMCG anymore. I, there's no money in it. The people aren't nice. And the work's become really difficult and boring. Um, don't get me wrong. Some people do wonderful work in that category in Australia. Um, but I was over it. We'd done a bit of work in property. Um, and I just adapted to that sector so quickly. And I found that for me, everything changed because I wasn't dealing just with some marketing manager. I was dealing with the CEO of the firm or some billion dollar owner. Uh, I wasn't just creating a logo and a brochure. Um, And admittedly, I got to do a lot of innovation and new product development in FMCG. But what I loved about property was I was starting to have an influence on the way that people lived. I wasn't just creating like a um, piece of marketing. I was talking about how we could actually design the precinct, how the master yeah. plan could change, how we could actually talk to the architect about rethinking the facade, how we could do things on the roof. So what's changed for us is that we're not just doing logos and brochures for property developments. We're actually holistically involved in the entire process. We brief architects uh, on a theme of how we want a building to be designed. We're working with interior designers on predetermining the approach of the look and feel. We're engaging master plan designers. Um, We are developing themes for uh, landscape design. And it's really exciting. That's, I mean, so did you build up to that, though? Because that's, I mean, that's a... That's a, it's an awesome thing to do and to be able to kind of... Because I remember hearing you once talk about, like, if, if you're not doing it, then something's going to go up and you, you'll find that hard to live with because yeah. it could have been so much more. Yeah, I think I started by being very involved in finding ways to improve what was being created. Right. And I found very quickly that I had a lot more influence than I would have assumed would be possible, to be mm-hmm. honest. I think the reason that clients took me so seriously is because I wasn't just talking about aesthetics. I was saying, you can have the best of both worlds. You can actually achieve a better outcome, create a legacy, have a product that's worth more, that will sell for more, and actually create more benefit to the community by creating a a development of substance with some amenity, uh, with some infrastructure, and that actually provides something to a broader spectrum of the people who live around there rather than just the purchasers. So I always say it's a win-win. You know, people don't really believe a win-win is possible, but it absolutely is. Mm. And so from that 
process. So I've now been working with councils all around Australia. We've rebranded cities. We're working on positioning for cities and what they mean and how they can market themselves, how they can engage businesses to want to move and set up business there, how uh, people can actually rethink about the way they engage with the city they live in. Uh, how we can actually uh, attract new people to move there and how we can actually retain young people to not move away. Yeah. How we can actually get them to innovate and to start their own businesses and actually add value to a place that they don't necessarily want to leave. They often feel they have no choice mm. if we're not talking about places like Sydney and Melbourne. So all of these things kept pushing me towards developing deeper thinking and more thought leadership about placemaking. So it was beyond just branding. It was actually creating places with purpose. Mm. And, you know, now we're doing uh, environments all around Australia uh, for from enormous organisations to even smaller places. And we might just curate the retail, put some F&B in there, uh, predetermine some of the businesses, uh, develop something really beautiful for um, amenity of swings and kids' playground. And in that, it's kind of led me to create this book that I've worked on for the last two years. Number 16. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should have called it number 16. No, I think half of them were crap, so I probably would have been number eight. Um, it's called The Place Economy. Right. And the way I describe it is I always say it's, it's about the real-world social and economic benefits of effective placemaking. Right. So the point being, you can invest to create better environments that people want to be. Attract people, whether they're buying or spending any money there, to just want to be at these places, mm. vibrant, engaging, dynamic places. And in doing that, in making sure that everyone wants to be at these places, well, what happens is the apartments actually sell for a lot more money. Yep. And the leasing for the restaurants and the offices lease for a lot more money. So people are happy to pay more money because you know, we're going to deliver them a far better product in a neighbourhood that's more engaged where people want to be. Mm. And that's really the sum of it. It comes down to that simple fact. I remember you saying quite a while ago that one of the things you noticed very early on is that the developers thought about the kind of the retail and everything as an afterthought. And you saw very quickly that actually that should be the main thing they should do first and then that would help sell and then create a better space and everything. The way, you know, developers risk enormous amounts of money in, um, in these sorts of endeavours. Now, I'm talking a little tiny development might be, you know, 30 million. A mm. decent one might be 400 million. A big one might be 2 billion. Wow. Now, these are not situations that happen every once in a while. I would deal with these sorts of ex examples every month, all the time. They're really common wow. for me. Mm. So, in the past, you know, where we might have dealt with a project that was worth hundreds of thousands or maybe even a million. Yeah. I commonly deal with billions of dollars, wow. commonly. Wow. Uh, we estimated that last year the projects that we worked on uh, in terms of the sales of apartments or the leasing deals for commercial, last year I think we did $12.6 billion in deals for our clients. Oh, my God. And I don't think that many people in our industry could say they had that sort of commercial effect. Yeah. But the thing is, to go back to your point, when you're talking about these numbers, developers focus on where the revenue is coming from. And in the current climate, revenue comes from apartment sales, not from retail or commercial leasing. And obviously, zero money comes from landscaping, placemaking, and creating amenity. That yeah. just costs money. Yeah. So well, the way we've approached it is thinking about it from an economic point of view. We've sold it to developers that by doing it our way, you will actually make more money and more profit. 
but you need to invest up front. You need to think more about what it is that you're creating. And in doing that, rather than thinking about the retail or the food, beverage and the commercial as the last thing you do after it's been built, we say do that three years before you build it. Resolve it all. Create a true vision with meaning. And in doing that, you'll give people comfort and peace of mind that something special has been created. Yep. And you'll compel more people to want to buy there or do a deal a few years out of it being constructed. So in giving people that peace of mind, uh, you are going to attract a far greater number of interested parties. So what's what's an example of this compared to like we're building a four-story unit and there's there's some space for a coffee shop or maybe a bar or something liquor license pending. Yep. What's the difference between that and what you're what you're talking about in this kind of case? It's the same at a different scale. It's right. the same thing. You know, like we might have a client that says, "Oh, we're building a four-story apartment block and we've got some retail at the bottom." they would just ignore the retail and just do the apartments and then just try and sell them and at the end try and lease the retail knowing it's not worth that much money to them. Hmm. For that little project, we would say to them, right, let's have a look at your architecture and hopefully they haven't done it because then we can actually hire the architect for them and we can develop the vision of what that little boutique building is going to mean and how it can be compelling what's the story it's going to tell take a branding mindset and apply it from a placemaking point of view to even a little boutique apartment building and you can actually create a personality and in doing that predetermine who that wine bar or restaurant or retail business should be and then you actually got something to say to the community and to the potential mm. purchases. And in doing that, instead of the apartments maybe selling for $600,000 each, because we've actually told that story so well, and we've done it in a way that's so engaging and different to the rest of the market, those apartments will sell for 800000 each. Mm. Times that by 40. Now, that's the difference. So we are applying design thinking, and we are also applying economic modelling. And what we get is a better outcome for everybody. More profit for the developer, a better product for the people who buy, and a better solution and engaged environment for the community. It's lovely cool. that you use the word story so much as you were kind of, because I guess the story applies to both the developer and the people who eventually live there. So, The great thing is that when you continue to create success for developers, they adopt the model across their entire business, even for projects mm. that you may not be involved in. It's interesting the amount of times I've seen clients go and do other projects and take our thinking and apply it even when we're not working on it. And part of me at the time probably thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> But the reality is that you just want to see better outcomes. You want to see people live better lives. And I love the idea that whilst I may have started my career as a graphic designer, and yeah, I still am one, I love the idea that we have such a great effect on the way people live and that, you know, beyond just a logo and a brochure, we're working collaboratively with architects, landscapers, interior designers, town planners. And rather than just being the guy who does the logo, we're actually seen as the thought leaders. We are now the people who lead the conversation, not follow on, you know, with our, with our pencils. So it's like more than a seat at the table, you're kind of leading the charge in a way. We're that's at the head weird. of the table. Yeah. We the are the running the workshop. Mm. We are setting the agenda and we are leading people to create better outcomes. And even where I thought in the past architects would find my involvement frustrating, 
I've heard the opposite. I continually get told by architects, you create a better infrastructure or a better brief or a more opportunity for us to create and design better mm. buildings because you've already convinced the client to spend more money or to broaden the parameters or to actually set a vision or you've arrived at the table to us with a territory of what you want this building to be and a clear story of how you want to articulate that. So we're just designing to that. And mm. you've actually created really great parameters rather than a client who gives us nothing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> just make it so. Yeah. yeah. So you must have been a nightmare, though, when you did your own studio. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've literally just moved in Sydney to a new studio, which has been, what, six months, eight months in the making? Uh, yeah, I took the lease at the start of the year. We moved in in June. Uh, so... From I think it took me about two months to design it with a um, with a couple of friends in our in our studio. Uh, it's amazing! Then, it's an amazing space. Yeah, thanks. I'm pretty excited by. It. I always thought our Melbourne office was pretty amazing. I think when I did that about six or seven years ago, it was shortlisted as uh, one of the best commercial interior spaces in Australia. And for Sydney, I wanted it actually to be better. Now, we don't know yet because those awards aren't until next year. But I do think we've created something pretty special and people who come in are pretty blown away. Um, I personally love specifying materials. I love furniture and I love lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I dropped the floor plan, um, you know, after a few goes, it kind of became pretty clear cut to me. Um, I thought it would be completely different to the Melbourne office but it's kind of not. It's still right. black and charcoal and you know dark wood <laughs> mm-hmm. and those kind of colours. But you've the actually got an office different. now. You've got a space. Yeah, you know that's this is your first bizarre. One ever, isn't it? I feel like an adult. Um, <laughs> I feel like I kind of just grew up. It's the first time in my life that I've actually had an office. Wow. And even when I designed the space to have an office, I wasn't even sure I'd use it. You know, we've got like libraries and meeting rooms and a monstrous boardroom and, you know, staff kitchen and kind of chill out spaces. And I thought, I'm not going to use this office. But I thought, oh, I'll do it anyway. It can always just turn into a meeting room. And I think from the first day I walked in there, I've, I've loved it. I've loved it. You <laughs> know, spread out. It's so funny. You know, the guys are so keen on me having a little trolley full of spirits. And I'm like, no, it's just too cliche mad, man. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'll just leave them in the cupboard. <laughs> and you, you've actually got a view of the park as well. So. Yeah, it looks over Hyde Park. It's beautiful outlook. I mean, we do actually have about seven fridges. We've got so many beer and wine fridges. Like the, the, the kitchen is like a bar. It's, it's pretty cool. My wife comes in and cooks these enormous lunches for the team, you know, every month. And we sit down and eat together and, you know, take half a day off and uh, just have a, a wonderful sort of four-course meal with wine. You know, it's, right. it's nice to do. It's, I've always had this thing where I just like sitting down with the team and eating and drinking and mm. getting together and just talking. You know, we work really hard. So when you work hard, you kind of need to create some downtime. Yeah. And there's got to be give and take in everything. Um, you know, I don't want to have a, a culture where people are you know, doing crazy hours. But every once in a while, we do have to work late hours and we kind of do really put in extra. But I think people should always be rewarded. You know, it's a two-way street. I want people to want to work at Hoyne for a long period of time because they feel valued and they feel well compensated and they feel like there's a culture that's been created that they're a really important part of. I mean, the reality is they are the culture. Yeah. Without people, it's nothing but walls on a floor. 
So it sounds like building a culture is really important to you. We've kind of talked about these interesting things where more or less doing away with the hero designer, waving the flag sort of thing, and it's more about collaborating with people. Is that something that you try to build within Hoyne or do you try to look for people that already have those skills and bring and bring them in or... I mean, how would you do that so in the first place? To run a successful place? business, you, you have a pretty long list of things that you need to constantly be doing. So I'd say it's everything. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I talk about when we have our Monday morning weekly meetings is collaboration. Collaboration for me is it's right up there with relationships. If you're not going to collaborate, you're not going to grow. Um, you know, you, you need to add value by contributing wherever you can, but also ensuring that you're hearing and listening and involving other people. Um, so collaboration always creates a better outcome. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of initiatives in our business that I think are probably quite unique for our sector, uh, design or communications. We do have a lot of sort of social events and, you know, get-togethers and lunches and dinners. Has that been hard to keep going as you've grown and grown? Not really. No, I think it's just been a really important part of the business to me, so I've always... Mm retained it so, you know it's another way that sort of really sets us apart based on what we're doing within our business how we treat our people yep. the decisions that we make about who we will and will not work with as clients i think recently we've had to let a couple of clients go because um you know morally they just didn't fit with the way that i believe business should be done and i just don't believe that my staff should have to deal with certain types of human beings You're right um so you know I have a responsibility as really an employer. really want to know who those people are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I need to set parameters. I have high expectations, but I also need to protect people from not being treated inappropriately. We're a professional organisation, yeah. and that's how we should be treated. Talking about high expectations, I got told to not ask you about the Hoyne signage uh, when you come out the lift. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think this signage manufacturer went for a bit of creative license and tried to sort of re-space the lettering. <laughs> so that's all being reconstructed at the moment. <laughs> no one notices it except for me, and it really kind of irks the shit out of me. I can't really walk past it. So I'm, get, I'm guessing eyes. that the spacing is incorrect. Like it's a little bit out, but it's enough out that it, it you know, it kind of jars my mind. I kind of have a little sort of tilt of the head. Um, I, I really hope that was like someone senior in the company who just went, mate, just over to the right just a little bit, just as they're installing, <laughs> just to get you go. So just before we run out of time, I just want to ask more about the books because you kind of mentioned them before and you said it's it's something that you love doing. Yeah. It's not really a, a commercial. No, I mean, you don't really make money out of doing books. Uh, you just do them because... But, uh, I mean, you've done 15 of them. That's pretty... Well, 16, <laughs> sorry. I, I just do them as like a hobby. There's things that I like doing, different themes, different endeavours, um, different pursuits. So what, so, so what are the books about? Oh, God. <laughs> Everything. I've done books. I've done a book about coffee, a book about playing pool, a book about aromatherapy. Wow. You know, like just things that I might be interested in at the time. Yeah. I've done cookbooks with quite a few friends who are well-known chefs, and I've kind of partnered with them on that. Um, but this latest book is quite different because – well, for one, it's got a lot of words, not just pictures. It has over 500 images, but it has 36,000 words. Uh, it's been contributed by uh, you know, leading thought starters from around the world. You know, Contributors like Alain de Botton, probably wow. considered the most famous philosopher in the living today. And a lot to say about space as well, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the leading uh, expert on walkability, Jeff Speck from the USA, wow. uh, Professor Edward Blakely, uh, one of the experts on placemaking and town planning globally. Um, uh, We've got a contribution by Frank Gehry. Uh, There are major people in this book. And 
our view is that this is a book that should really impact the way people in positions of power in Australia think about placemaking and think about property development and think about what it is to create communities. Uh, so it's really important for us that the projects that we're involved in, that we're proud of, and that we're looking beyond uh, just the marketing and the selling, but actually, you know, what it is that we're creating as a legacy for future generations. Mm. And I think this book will play a powerful role in achieving that. And whilst it's finished and it's printed and it's actually being launched in a few weeks, I've already started the second one. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually, uh, it's, I mean, you know, I love travel and I love an excuse to travel and go and meet people. So, yeah, in a few weeks I'm going to Austin, Texas to meet some people. Then I'm going to go to Detroit and then New York. And, uh, yeah, we're talking, I just was in Barcelona last month and we're talking to some really interesting people. And we're getting case studies from all around the world. Um, and, you know, we're obviously involved in lots of major projects in Australia. And it's exciting to think that as they're completed, we can you know, use those as benchmarks of what can be done in Australia. So where can people buy it? Uh, interestingly, I only printed one and a half thousand copies and I'm giving them away to lots of people in, in the industry. But I'm retailing it for $200 a copy on Amazon. Uh, 100% of all money will be uh, given to Habitat for Humanity, an organization that um, creates homes for people living in difficult circumstances. So when I do books, I'm not trying to make any money. And they, you know, they lose a lot and they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make, I can assure you. But even for the sort of, you know, the purchase price, I don't want to keep that money. I just want to see it be diverted to um, to another sort of cause and, and put to good use. Mm. Uh, because, you know, I don't want people to misinterpret the, the reason that we do this, uh, even if it is only a small amount. Cool. Amazing. We'll put, the, put some links in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty excited by the book. I hope people really like it. Um, there's been a lot of heart and soul that's gone into it. I think there's some great ideas. Um, and, you know, it really is a project that's considerate of people in all walks of life and in all parts of society. Uh, so for me, if you know, we can play a role in uh, impacting the lives of the way people live, you know, that would be my life's work, you know, as a graphic designer, mm. uh, beyond loving the work that we do, but taking it to that next level and working with other experts in the field. Um, you know, it's a really exciting place to be. Great. Fantastic. What a way to finish yeah we'll end on that that's great <laughs> cool guys thanks for having me yeah thanks so oh, much thank for, you. for coming on and um usually at the end of the show we kind of go around the table and find out how like how can people get in touch with you if if they want to um or how can people find out more about you it could just be the website or sure. social you know, media i uh, like i've just learned this year about this new phenomenon called social media oh yeah <laughs> uh i'm a i'm pretty slow on the uptake i really am so I actually, um, I mentor a number of people uh, in Australia and overseas, and one of the people I mentor a few months ago was giving me stick, going, man, I can't believe you don't use social media personally. I do use Facebook for photos for my kids, you know, for Rellos in other states, but I finally started posting stuff on Instagram. She gave me a task, and I've been Instagramming, you know, <laughs> even, even posting video content. Uh, so, yeah, we know we're all on, on, the, uh, on all the sort of obvious links uh, under Hoyne. Um, but yeah, if you know people have got something important to say to me, uh, they can always email me. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, if you go to our website, you'll find all sorts of information uh, to connect with a range of different people in our business. Um, you know, we're always looking for good people to join the team. 
Uh, I often say that when you meet someone amazing, you just hire them, even if you don't have a job. Yeah. You just hire them <laughs> and just figure out a job later. <laughs> they can work on your books. <laughs> yes, all my uh, non-paying work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Matt, where can people find you? Uh, at Leechworth on Twitter, but I've just bought leechworth.com. Wow. So expect big things. Mm, wow. <laughs> it, does it have a little man like yeah, digging at, a hole? At, just at the moment. Sort of saying soon, under construction? Soon. Okay. It's going to be like a... Just a coming soon. Like an amusement park for the mind. Mm, a rumble in the jungle. Here we go. <laughs> Sounds like a roller coaster. And uh, you can find me on everything at Flynn Tracy. And you can find this episode and more at ausdesignradio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSDesignRadio. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>